Which please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you are joining our study here today as we continue our series called The Story, which is an overview, a Bible reading plan uh, through the entire Bible. We're going to finish up at the end of August, start something new in September, but we've been doing this for all of 2014. And so if you would like to get a hold of a copy of The Story, if you're a visitor uh, in your packet uh, that you'll receive, like Pastor Brian said, at one of the guest centers, in there is a coupon that looks just like this. You turn it into the resource center, and we would love to give you a gift from our church to you of the story that we've been going through. And you've come in on a perfect time because today we're doing the resurrection. We'll spend the month of August overviewing what God did through the early church. So this is a great time to jump in chapter by chapter as we study God's word together. Now we did, uh, if you just wonder, if you're a visitor, like these people don't understand their calendar. What's this with Easter going on? Well, we did Christmas in June because that's when the story started, the New Testament, the story of Jesus. Then uh, last Sunday, we did Good Friday in July. And this Sunday, we are doing Easter in August. And next Sunday, if you want to keep it going, we're going to do Pentecost Sunday in August as well, which is usually in May or in June. Now, this last week, I heard a statistic that in some ways didn't surprise me. In another way, very much surprised me. It said that 84% of non-church attenders believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if that was church attenders, it's like, okay, I get that. But 84% of non-churchgoers still believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, let me tell you why that doesn't surprise me, because there's overwhelming evidence, possibly more than for any event in human history, over 500 eyewitnesses seen in a variety of situations over a period of time. It caused a 180-degree turn in history. Here we see, as we're going to meet in a moment, 11 disheartened disciples all of a sudden made into world changers that conquered the Roman Empire and eventually conquered the world. And today we're in the process of seeing the gospel proclaimed in every nook and cranny uh, throughout the world, in every language group, every ethnic group around planet Earth. And so it caused something caused, something amazing caused this 180-degree explosion in human history. So in some ways, it's not surprising because there's overwhelming evidence for it. But another way, it's incredibly surprising. Because if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it changes everything. It changes. It gives you, it gives you a hunger that on a muggy summer Southern California Sunday morning, you climb out of bed when you could be doing a hundred other things. And you come here because you got this hunger to worship God, to study his word, to be with other believers, to be mutually challenged and mutually encouraged. And so how in the world can you believe in the resurrection of Jesus and not have it change everything in your life? So in some ways it's not surprising because of the overwhelming evidence, but in some ways it's incredibly surprising because how in the world can you believe that and not have it change everything about you. Does anybody want to say amen to that? Matthew 27, the next day, the one after preparation day, Matthew's referring here to the Passover feast, and so the next day after the crucifixion, so Friday we call Good Friday, and then we have this day in between, Saturday, the second day, first day, Friday, he was buried, second day, Saturday, third day, we refer to as Easter Sunday. The next Sunday, the day after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, 
that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Now, isn't it interesting that the enemies of Jesus remembered what he said better than the followers of Jesus? And they remembered that he said on the third day, uh, Friday, Saturday, third day, Sunday, I will rise again. They remembered it, but in their grief, the disciples had forgotten it. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure. Now, this is so interesting to me that actually God used the enemies of Jesus to uh, confirm the supernatural nature of the resurrection by securing the tomb with a regiment of, of Roman soldiers. Because if they had done nothing, then maybe the story would have taken hold that the disciples went and stole the body. But because the enemies of Jesus said, let's secure it completely, then when it didn't happen and Jesus rose from the dead, then people, when they heard the story of the disciples uh, stole the body from a regiment of Roman soldiers, everybody in Jerusalem would have gone, yeah, right. And so the enemies actually were used by God to fulfill his plan. We saw that last Sunday, where we saw in the Old Testament where the king of what is today the nation of Iraq, Nebuchadnezzar, used for God's purposes. Darius, the king of what is today the nation of Iran, used for God's purposes. Caiaphas, the high priest, enemy of Jesus, was still used by God prophetically to give a prophetic utterance that one man must die for the nation. Uh, used by God, even though it's an enemy of Jesus. Even the people at the foot of the cross mocking Jesus, he, he can't save himself and others, said something that was true. By not saving himself, he saved others. And here exactly the same thing happens. These enemies of Jesus fulfill the work of God to confirm the supernatural nature of the resurrection. The tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples will come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception, that is the resurrection, will be worse than the first deception, which was his claim to be the Messiah. Now, Saturday was a no hope, no courage day. Probably the saddest day in all of human history. Uh, you know, we don't have a name for it. We have a name for the crucifixion day, Good Friday. We have a day for uh, the Sunday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Resurrection or Easter Sunday, Good Friday, but we've got no name for Saturday. So I propose we call it Depression Saturday, and we copyright the name from our church, okay? Something makes me think it's just not going to catch on like the others, I think. But at any rate, we have Good Friday, Depression Saturday, followed by Easter Sunday, while Jesus' opponent celebrated his death, his disciples are hiding in fear that they too are going to be put on a cross. The disciples gather behind closed doors out of their fear. They don't trust or remember or trust Jesus' promises of a resurrection. Jesus said in Mark eight twenty one, he said to them, do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? Now, he's talking about all of his miracles in that context, but certainly applies to what he tells them in the next chapter. Mark 9, verse 31. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, the women disciples, as they come to the tomb that morning, did not intend to celebrate Jesus' resurrection body. They, they had that, that was the furthest thing from their minds. They came to embalm a dead body. They came to the tomb for an embalming, not for a resurrecting. Mark chapter 16, verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, 
And that's why for 2,000 years, Christians, instead of worshiping on Saturday, now we worship on the Lord's Day. Okay, instead of Saturday, the Sabbath, we worship on the Lord's Day. Really, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Not just August 3rd, because it's part of the story. Uh, Not just whenever we celebrate Easter in the spring. Actually, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. It's why we changed our worship day to the first day of the week. Very early, on the first day of the week, Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Why? For a resurrection? No, to embalm the body. Next page of your study outline. Sunday, resurrection day, is a day of eternal love, life, and hope. Mary Magdalene comes to Jesus' tomb and she's stuck in a Saturday state of mind. So really, that's our choice. Even though we've been saved, and Mary Magdalene had been delivered from seven demons, and seven in the Bible is the number of fulfillment, and so it means she was completely demon-possessed. Everything about her was oriented towards Satan. And then she was delivered by Jesus, and now she is radically saved. But even though she is saved, she is still in a Saturday state of mind. And boy, that describes us a lot of the time, doesn't it? We're saved we follow the resurrected Jesus, and yet we live as if we're still defeated. We, we live as if we don't recognize the power that is still available for us and that lives within us. And so even though she is saved, she comes to the tomb in a Saturday state of mind. John 20, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Uh, I remember when I went to Homer Baptist's little country church in central New York, and Uh, My predecessor, three pastors before me, had preached a sermon that they still talked about three pastors later. I mean, that must have been some sermon. And the title of it was, What If He Had Been the Gardener? What if it had been the gardener? And the difference the resurrection makes and what would happen if there had been no resurrection. And they still talked about that sermon. What if he had been the gardener? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her one word, Mary. Isn't that something? Uh, In her grief, she just was in a lack of faith state. She couldn't remember the promises of Jesus. She was so grief-stricken. I mean, she describes us, doesn't it? Sometimes we get so beaten down by life. You're going through a round of chemotherapy, or you're going through a heartbreaking situation in your family, or... Or, or light, work is tough right now and you got a difficult boss and I don't know what it is for you, but we get so beaten down in, in, in life that we just can't uh, recognize Jesus and working within our life. And then he speaks her name. And when she hears her name as said by Jesus, as she had heard it before, all of a sudden she recognizes who it is. Max Lucado writes, Jesus could have given Mary Magdalene the stars, for he owned every one of them. 
He could have entrusted her with power because all authority had been given to him. He could have given her the ability to do great works for he had just defeated hell and death. But when it came time to honor this devoted servant who was the only one still calling him Lord, what Jesus did was this. He gave her himself. He called her by name. Last night before I went to bed, I was just reading a commentary by um, J. Vernon McGee on, on this passage. And he actually believes that when we will be resurrected, it'll be by Jesus calling our name. He will call us name by name, and we will be resurrected into our new resurrection bodies. And I don't know if that's true or not, but isn't it an awesome thought that when you die, the next thing you'll hear is your name. Bill, Joanne, Glenn, Mary, Jose, whatever your name is, you will hear Jesus say your name. Just like he did to Lazarus at Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus, your name, fill in the blanks, come forth. And the next thing you'll hear after you close your eyes in death is Jesus speaking your name. And so he says to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And actually, this verse is a bit of a mystery. We're not 100% sure what exactly is going on here. Uh, This word to hold on to or to touch is from the Greek word haptomai, which is well translated here in the NIV. Sometimes it's translated as touch, but really it carries with it the idea to grab a hold of, not merely to touch somebody, but to grab them, to hold on to them. And so I like the English translation here, do not hold on to me. And really what's going on here is he eventually is in the process of ascending to his resurrection body. And the main point here is it's not gonna go back to the way it was before in the relationships with the disciples. And, and, and she thinks, well, now that he's back, it's just gonna go back to the way it was before Good Friday. That's what she thought. They says, no, no, it's a whole new reality. And I know you wanna hold on to me, but actually I'm gonna give you something even better than my tangible presence. And that's what we're gonna study next Sunday, which is the day of Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And, and even though we think it would be so awesome to have Jesus in bodily form today, well, then his time would be limited to 12 people because basically that's what he had to limit his time to, to the 12 and a little bit more to everybody else, but that's about it, okay? So the Holy Spirit, Jesus living in each person's heart who receives him as Lord and Savior actually is way better than having Jesus in the flesh, And so he says, don't hold on to me. And in essence, he's saying it's not just going to go back to the way it was before the cross, but it said there's something new coming, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascended to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Now, he, he recognizes that our relationship, even though we are children of God, we're not a, a child of God the way Jesus is a child of God. He's a member of the Trinity. And so that's why he says, my father and your father, my God and your God. Because his relationship is different. He's a co-equal member of the Trinity. Whereas we are children of God as creations of God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she had, he had said these things to her. Now, it's interesting to note that the empty tomb did not take away her despair and grief. 
She saw the empty tomb. She's still despairing. Still, Saturday is covering her. Uh, The angels, even talking to angels, did not take away her despair and grief. Mary Magdalene, the one Jesus befriended and delivered from demonic oppression, she had the sadness of Saturday covering her. The angels couldn't lift it. The empty tomb couldn't lift it. But Jesus, alive from the dead, meets her and simply calls her by name, and instantly it lifts. And now she transitions from Saturday to Sunday. She wrongly thought he was the gardener. And Jesus speaks Mary's name, and she realizes that Jesus, her Lord, is alive from the dead. Now, I want to give you a chance to receive him as your Lord and Savior before we enter into communion. And I want to take a little more time than usual. So even though I've asked you to do it a hundred times, would everybody turn to the back of their program? And I want to go through these steps to being a follower of Jesus. And I want to do it in light of the resurrection, in the light of what we've just read. And it says, how to become a follower of Jesus. And we take this from the words of Jesus. Jesus used the term follow me more than any other term for receiving him as Lord and Savior. He uses it more than born again, more than receiving him, more than any other term. He uses the phrase, I think it's 87 times or something like that. He says, follow me. There's a number of times that he says, follow me. So that's why we put this particular phrase here, how to be a follower of Jesus. But it's very interesting how it ties into that earlier clip as to how you follow him or unfollow him. And some people unfollow him and some people follow him. So here's how we become a follower of Jesus. Um, Three steps. First of all, you admit your condition before God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It puts that gap between us and God. But here's the key. We've got to admit our condition before we can be forgiven. I heard something this last week that was very interesting. I, I heard most of the story before, but I'd never heard this particular part of it. President Richard Nixon, after Watergate and after his resignation, Uh, His successor, Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford, gave him a pardon. Now, we've probably all heard that. But maybe you've heard this before, but I had never heard this before. Do you know that President Nixon, at that point, ex-President Nixon, held on to the pardon for a number of days trying to figure out if he was going to accept it or not? Because you see, to accept the pardon is to admit guilt. And he actually struggled with what he, whether he wanted to receive the pardon. It was delivered to him, but did he want to receive it or not? Because the only way you get a pardon, you receive a pardon, is by admitting that you did something wrong that needed to be pardoned. And the same thing is true for us, is that we have to admit our condition before God in order to be pardoned. We have to acknowledge all have sinned and that I'm included in all and fall short of the glory of God. B, believe that Jesus is God's only solution to that condition. Romans 6, 23, for the wages, the result of sin is spiritual death, physical death and spiritual death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I encourage you as a little bit of a homework assignment. Before you go um, to bed this evening or maybe this afternoon when you get home from uh, church, read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's called the resurrection chapter by Paul about the resurrection. I encourage you to read uh, the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. But let me read you a few verses from it. Uh, he says towards the, um, uh, the middle of the passage, he, said, uh, if, uh, he says, if the dead are not raised, okay, if the resurrection didn't happen, 
Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do you know that's in the Bible? <laughs> Just taken out of context. What does the Bible teach? Eat and drink, tomorrow we die. Yeah, okay. Uh, but that's if the resurrection didn't happen. If the resurrection, you've heard me say this many times, if the resurrection didn't happen, we're just a random group of cells experiencing random chance. And we're just organized dirt, raising children that are organized dirt until we turn into dirt and they continue to eat and drink and eat and drink until they turn into dirt, hopefully having some other kids that will eat and drink and eat and drink until they turn into dirt. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> but that's the good news. That's why you did come today. Because we are not just organized dirt, worm food, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's not just a series of meals until we die. Uh, Because he says earlier, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so it gives us a purpose, there's our favorite word again, a purpose for living. It makes life significant, meaningful, and it lets us know we have the hope of eternal life as well. C, choose to follow Christ as your Savior and Lord. Uh, Jesus said, I tell you, whoever hears my word, And believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Because Jesus crossed from death to, uh, from life to death and back to life again, he's opened the passageway for us to do the same. To cross over one day, if Jesus doesn't return in our lifetime, to cross over from life to death, but then to cross from death back to life once again. He's made the passageway for that to happen by his resurrection. Um, During the Middle Ages, the most coveted thing uh, during a certain time in the Middle Ages was a water route from Europe to Asia. You would make your country rich if you could find such a route. Because the Mediterranean Sea was hotly contested waters, and then you'd have to cross the Arabian Peninsula, cross the desert there, the Arabian Desert. And so everybody wanted a sea route, completely sea, around the tip of Africa, from Europe, around the tip of Africa, to Asia. But nobody could do it. It was considered impossible. Around the tip of Africa, uh, many ships were destroyed. Hundreds, if not thousands, of sailors lost their lives attempting that. To the point where sailors referred to the, the cape, the tip around Africa, as the Cape of Storms, which was considered impossible to pass through. And then a courageous sea captain by the name of Vasco da Gama, um, a Portuguese sea captain, He successfully did it in 1498. He sailed from Lisbon, Portugal, around the tip of Africa to Calcutta, India, and back once again. And so eventually, after he showed the way it could be done, they changed the name of the Cape around the tip of Africa from the Cape of Storms to the Cape of Good Hope. And that's what Jesus did for us. When he conquered death, when he navigated from life to death and back to life once again. 
Now no longer does death need to be the cape of storms. Our death can be the cape of good hope. And I want to give you the chance to claim that hope right here, right now. I'm going to pray this prayer out loud. I invite you to pray it silently as I pray out loud. Dear God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth. I believe Jesus was who he said he was, and he proved it by rising from death. I want to discover and begin following your plan and purpose for my life. I want to get to know you personally. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for dying for me and for giving all my sins. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life. And all God's family said, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer today, we've got a gift that we would love to give from our church to you. It's at the guest tables that Pastor Brian was talking about earlier. There's one on the south side of the lobby, one on the north side of the lobby. And it, it just, just no obligation, just pick up this packet as a, a resources to help you in your walk with God. If you'd like to talk to somebody, there's somebody after the service that's there to talk to you. But if you'd rather just go by and pick up this packet and, and take it home, this is a gift from us to you that we'd love to give you on this momentous occasion um, within your life. And you're also welcome to share the Lord's Supper with us. Um, if you've prayed that prayer or something like it in the past, or if you prayed that prayer today, you are very welcome to show publicly that you're a follower of Jesus by taking the bread that represents his body and the cup that represents his blood shed for us on the cross. So as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, let's just watch this as we uh, prepare.